Well, we are continuing this morning with our brief study through several uh, select psalms. Since we learned a song today based on Psalm 145, that's the psalm we're going to be focusing on. So the next time we sing it, you can recognize some of the phrases that are there. Uh, psalm 145 is given the title in, your, in the Bible of a psalm of praise of David. Uh, this is the last of the psalms that are specifically attributed to David, uh, and it's the only one with that title, David's Psalm of Praise. Some have speculated that that may mean this was his favorite, that this was the Psalm of Praise that was the one that he was, was his favorite. I think that's kind of cool. Most of us, probably just about all of us, have hymns, spiritual songs that we sing that are probably your favorites that you enjoy singing maybe more than others, that's good. I think it's good to have favorites. It's also a place for learning new songs like we did today, but it's good to have favorites. Well, David wrote this psalm as an acrostic. It's based on it follows the, the, uh, the progression of the Hebrew alphabet. Uh, each verse, therefore, in order, uh, begins with a letter of the corresponding, uh, al- uh, corresponding letter in the Hebrew alphabet. There's one exception to that in between verse 13 and 14. The letter that would correspond to our letter N, uh, there's not a verse for that one. But the idea of using an acrostic, this is done with a number of, of, of psalms. The idea of using an acrostic was to help people to be able to memorize the psalm so they could use it in their own personal time of praise. This psalm is just full of expressions of praise, just one after another. In some ways, it's almost hard to have a clear outline uh, because everything just kind of all mixes together. But there's three themes that show up several times that I want to consider. The first theme is uh, is the idea of variety, of variety in praise. The second theme focuses on praising God for his works of providence. And the third thing we're going to look at is the theme of the kingdom of God, which shows up a number of times here. So in our first main point, we need to consider that the great and glorious God deserves continuous and varied praise. Continuous and varied praise. At first I was thinking I might just kind of go through and just list some of the different words and different phrases that David uses in his hymn of praise. But what that means is just reading the psalm. Because the psalm is just one praise after another, after another, after another. Um, David's praises honor the Lord, and from many different, from several different angles, he directs his praise. So let's read Psalm 145. Uh, we've already read it once this morning with Jeremiah. And, but take note of some of the variety of praise that's here. He starts off saying, I will extol you. My God, O King, and I will bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you, and I will praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord, and highly to be praised. His greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall praise your works to another, and shall declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty, and on your wonderful works, I will meditate. Men shall speak of the power of your awesome acts, and I will tell of your greatness. They shall eagerly utter the memory of your abundant goodness, and you will joyfully sh- and you will shout joyfully of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and great in loving kindness. The Lord is good to all. His mercies are over all his works. All your work shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and your godly ones shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and talk of your power to make known to the sons of men your mighty acts and the glory of the majesty of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. Your dominion endures throughout all generations. The Lord sustains all who fall and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food in due time. You open your hand and satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his deeds. 
The Lord is near to all who call upon him, to all who call upon him in truth. He will fulfill the desire of those who fear him. He will also hear their cry and will save them. The Lord keeps all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord, and all flesh will bless his holy name forever and ever. Really, it's just an amazing hymn of praise. I don't know about you, but I know that when I pray, I mean, I have expressions of praise to the Lord that I use more than others. You probably do, too. Uh, I mean, it's good that we have those expressions of praise that that we can use uh, in, in our prayer. But we also need to grow in our praise. Verse 3 says, Great is the Lord, highly to be praised. His greatness is unsearchable. So therefore, his greatness should be searched and considered and recognized. But we will never get to the end of our search of God's greatness because his greatness is unsearchable. So because that's true, that means our praise vocabulary should continue to grow and increase. This actually reminds me of something that I happened to me a number of years ago. I was trying to think through. It was either 1977 or 1978 in the summer. I was working in youth ministry with a church in Titusville, Florida. And one of the things that we would do with the youth and young adults uh, during the summer was attend uh, an outdoor Jesus festival in Orlando. At that time, um, I don't know if any of you guys can even relate to this, but there was a time when Jesus festivals were all the rage. I mean, they were everywhere. Uh, you go camping, out camping, they would bring in uh, singing groups, uh, various musical artists, various speakers uh, would be there, and you would just kind of, the speakers would be speaking under, they, you get to have these big circus tents, you know, where it, whoever you went to see, they would be under a particular circus tent, somebody else would be another one, another, another one, that kind of thing. Pretty amazing. Uh, so we used to go to those really every summer uh, because, like I said, there was one in Orlando, which was about 45 minutes away from where we were. One of the speakers that I went to hear on this particular um, summer was a man named C.J. Mahaney. Some of you may recognize that name. Uh, this was back in the day when both of us still had hair. Well, I was attending his session which began with a time of praise and worship. I forget what he was going to talk about. But it started with a time of praise and worship. He asked the musicians to stop playing and said, let's just take some time to just express our praise to the Lord. You know, without music, let's just, let's just take some time to do that. So people began just to speak things out loud, you know. In a few moments, it wasn't very long, he stopped everybody and he said, all I hear people saying is, praise the Lord, hallelujah. Is that all you know? We're going to do this again. And you cannot use the word, praise the Lord or hallelujah. I learned something there. <laughs> that has stuck with me. And I believe, based on what we've seen in Psalm 145, David would have done the same thing C.J. Mahaney did. Is that all you know? Your praise needs to expand beyond that. Well, praise and worship are just vitally important in the Christian life. In fact, William Morley Punchon made this observation about it. He says, praise is the only part of duty, speaking of Christian duty, in which we at present engage, which is lasting. Lasting forever and ever, as David said. For example, we make petitions in prayer. We pray for other people. We pray for events. We pray for different things that are taking place. In heaven, we won't need to do that. Faith is important in our life now. But in heaven, faith will become sight. We hope. Hope is an important part of our Christian faith now. In heaven, hope is fully realized. 
We try to be a witness to other people. In heaven, there'll be no need to be a witness to other people. All of those things will come to an end. But praise and worship continues. Verse 1, verse 2, verse 21, at the very end of the psalm, all say, we will bless his holy name forever and ever and ever. So this is the one aspect of our Christian life that will continue for eternity. Now, in this life, our praise to the Lord has a beginning, has an end. I know, in other words, we can't, our whole life is not taken up with this. We have other things that we have responsibilities in life, different things. And so we have times of praise. And you probably maybe sneak some times of praise or thanksgiving, you know, in between that kind of stuff. In heaven, praise and worship will be never ending. It will be continuous. And we will never find it boring. We will never be at a loss for what to say. It will be perpetual, eternal joy because in his presence is fullness of joy and in his right hand are pleasures forever. That motivates and drives our praise. But as we think about the continuous and varied praise our Lord deserves and will receive in heaven, most of this psalm deals with praise in the present. One of the things we see right away is this. It is right to praise the Lord every day, every day, no matter what the character of the day is. Look again at verses 1 and 2. I will extol you, my God, O King. I will bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you, and I will praise your name forever and ever. So David begins by extolling the Lord. He says, my God, O King. To extol the Lord is to set him preeminently on high, above all others, above everything else. So this is the kind of praise that really we need to speak to the Lord on a regular basis to acknowledge he is the one who is preeminently above everything else. I mean, there are many in our culture, of course, who are in high and some important places. There are media people who are greatly influential, for example. There are educators uh, and experts in various fields who regularly give their opinions, and a lot of people read and pay attention to what they have to say. People in the recreational and entertainment fields um, who hold a lot of influence over a lot of people. There are employers. There are ministers. There are parents. All of these are people who are in places of authority in some sense and um, have responsibility. Some use it wisely. Others use it foolishly. Of course, there's also those in the realm of government. We just participate in an election where governors, senators, representatives, and judges on both state and federal levels were chosen. In every case, there's authority and responsibility that goes along with the position that they're in. Sometimes we're encouraged. Sometimes we're helped by those in places of authority and influence. Other times, we're really disappointed uh, and disillusioned and really concerned by the decisions that they make. That is why we have to regularly extol our Lord, and, uh, our Lord as the God and King over all. That is what gives us the context we need for whatever is taking place in our life, in our culture, whatever it might be. David, who himself was a king, extols God as the king. So even though he was in the highest office in the land, he well knew that he was under the authority of his God and king. That's humbling, and we all need that. We all need that humbling aspect to recognize all of us are under his authority, and everyone who is in authority over us is under his authority. Everyone who has all that significant influence is under his authority, under his rule, under his domain. We need to reassure ourselves of that, not just to make, not just to pretend it's real when it's not, because it is real, to remind us of what reality is. Well, after speaking of exalting the Lord as God and King, David says in verse 2, every day I will bless you, I'll praise your name forever and ever. So as we noted, God here, praise and worship extends forever and ever, but it starts with each individual day here on earth. David 
commits to bless the Lord every day. To bless basically is to honor, uh, to praise. Some days when you think about it, it may not feel like a major challenge to praise the Lord on that day. You got a good night's rest. No major problems going on. Relationships are going pretty well. Um, And those days, beginning the day with praise may seem a little more natural, but even that's not really true because you're probably tempted the same way I am. If everything's going really well, you kind of almost forget that you really even need the Lord because everything's working out really well. So sometimes those days are more of a challenge than we realize. But then there's other days that are complete opposite. You didn't sleep well at all. There are things going on that make you fearful. There are things going on that make you really anxious. There are decisions that have to be made, and they're hard decisions, and you keep thinking about them. There are relationship problems. Some of those things were on your mind all night, which is the reason you didn't get a good night's sleep. On those days, we bless the Lord. We must make him our focus really from the get-go. We have to trust him as the great God and king, even when things are crazy and there's all kinds of things that are concerning to us. In those times, praise is probably the most important thing you can do before we get into the details of what that day is going to bring. Another thing to note about the fact that our God deserves continuous and varied praise is this. God's praise deserves careful thought in regard to the Lord himself and to his great works. David guides us to use a variety of terms and phrases uh, to praise our Lord, but he doesn't mean for us just to be satisfied with just using those different phrases. He wants us to think carefully and more deeply about the Lord. We already noted in verse 3, David describes God's greatness as being unsearchable. Well, that's an invitation to think deeply about his greatness with the encouragement that you will never get to the end of that task, and it's a glorious, delightful task. So what is it that makes God great? We can start doing that a little bit here. He says, I'm gonna, he said, you need to, you need, there needs to be some searching done in your mind. Well, let's just do a few searches here. One is his name, I am. I am who I am. Not I will be, not I was. He is always and eternally always has been and always will be, I am. He is eternally present. He truly never leaves or forsakes us. Think about the fact that God is triune. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. We should give time to thinking and pondering and studying the Trinity. Yes, there's ways it's unsearchable, for sure. You're never going to get to the end of it. But the trip will be worth it. The Baptist Catechism gives this definition of God in general. God is a spirit, infant, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. Can take some time just thinking about those words. God is a spirit. Think about infinite for a while. Think about eternal for a while. Think about unchangeable. What else do you know is unchangeable? And then it says he's a spirit who's infinite, eternal, unchangeable in his being. He's infinite, he's eternal, and unchangeable in his wisdom. He's infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his power. He's infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his holiness. He's infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his justice. He's infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his goodness. Infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his truth. If you just take some time thinking about those, I mean, that's unsearchable. But again, it's a delightful search to realize all that God is. David is, David is urging us to do that. Realize your God is great and actually do some searching yourself. I'm giving you some ideas. I'm giving you some phrases, but it's up to you to do some searches. 
yourself. In verse 5, David says he will meditate on God's wonderful works. Meditate on God's wonderful works. Meditate, again, is to think deeply, think carefully about. Let me mention several of his wonderful works that are worth meditating on. Creation. Every one of us, I'll bet, was struck with how the snow, how amazing the snow looks. I mean, a lot of us are probably surprised that we had that much. But just to see how it hangs on the trees, and it's just, I mean, it's just so beautiful. That's creation. Creation is God making all things of nothing by the word of his power, made it all out of nothing by the word of his power in the space of six days, and it's all very good. There is so much to meditate on in that particular wonderful work of God, the work of creation. Next month is Christmas. So we can meditate on the Son of God taking on human flesh and coming into the world. We can think about the wonder of the virgin birth. We can think on Christ's work of dying on the cross. We can think on his resurrection. We can think on his ascension to the right hand of the Father. You can think about the work, God's work of salvation in your own life. You can think about prayers that he's answered in your life. You can think about ways that as you look back, and even as you see in the present, that he's obviously watching over you in all the things that you have gone through and are going through. That's meditating on the works of God, and that offers him praise when we do that. So our great and glorious God deserves continued and varied praise from us. The next theme I want to look at is this one. The great and glorious God deserves ongoing praise for his great works of providence, for his great works of providence. Providence, we've shared this definition many times. God's works of providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful. God's most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions. So as David continues his hymn of praise to the Lord, he gives some special attention to God's providential work in the world. First, he lets us know this point, that praising the Lord for his work, uh, we, we praise the Lord for his work in sustaining his creation. That comes into him, especially in verses 14 to 16. Let me read those verses. The Lord sustains all who fall and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you. You give them their food in due time. You open your hand and satisfy the desire of every living thing. So in verse 15 there, we see it says, The eyes of all look to the Lord. Back in verse 9, for example, we see that the Lord is good to all. His mercies are over all his works. So every aspect of God's creation depends on him, not only for its initial existence, but for its continuing existence. This would include, for example, the angels. The angels are created by God, completely dependent on God for their continued existence, truly glorious and amazing creatures, and God cares for them. But God not only cares for amazing, holy, glorious angels, he cares for bugs and insects. He's the one who gives the beast of the field life, the fish of the ocean, the birds of the sky. If he doesn't give them life, there's no need to go fishing. Won't be anything there. These aspects of God's creation are not consciously looking to him for the Lord to feed them, but he's caring for them anyway. He's good to all. The Lord is also responsible for the fact that each one of us today here are living and moving and have our very existence because he is causing that to take place in us individually. He not only gives us what is needed to sustain our lives, But in verse 16, it says that he satisfies the desire of every living thing. He gives the desire for food, for example, and provides the food. And in his goodness, he provides a variety 
of food, sustenance of all sorts, taste buds that enable us to enjoy it. Every time we take a bite of food, it's evidence of God's providential care. It's also something that should cause us to praise him. The insect world, the animal kingdom, fish, do not have the ability to consciously look to him for their food and sustenance. He gives it to them anyway, but they don't have the ability to look to him consciously. We do. It's the Lord who provides our daily bread, so he's worthy of our ongoing praise. Next, we're called on to praise the Lord by taking note of and remembering his mighty works in history. In history. Verse 4 speaks of God's mighty acts. Verse 5 praises the Lord's wonderful works. Verse 6 speaks of the power of his awesome acts. Verse 9 speaks of his mercies over all his works. Verse 10 says that all his works give thanks to him. Verse 12 speaks of his mighty acts once again. All of these phrases, and they can mean more than this, but all these phrases speak of how the Lord is constantly at work in history. They are actions he has taken and is taking. One of the history books that we used with our kids in school was entitled The Mighty Works of God. That was the title of the history book. That phrase might lead you to think, well, it's talking about a lot of miraculous things. Well, that would be included, but... It's really much more broad than that. I mean, God is sovereign over all of history. All of history is the mighty works of God. He doesn't sit back and just watch to see how things are going to work out. He is actively involved. God has his wise and holy purposes for everything that takes place. Now, sometimes we have some recognition of what those purposes are when we look at things that are taking place or have taken place in history past. Other times, we have some understanding. Other times, we see things and we think, I don't understand what's going on here. I don't understand the purpose behind this. Maybe later you might. Maybe not at all. But what we do recognize is that God deserves our praise for the fact that they all are ultimately his mighty works. And David says, I want you to think about those things. I want you to spend some time thinking about that. That gives him praise when you do that. I understand not everybody enjoys studying history, but we're actually told in verse 5 that David meditated on, I mean, that's really giving careful focus on God's wonderful work. So if we're going to grow in our praise, we're going to have to give some attention to his mighty works in history. Jeremiah has been helping us do that as we, in our Old Testament, uh, the, the Old Testament study that he's doing, all kinds of mighty works that we see in the scriptures. Uh, just list a few. I mean, things that he did with and through Noah, things he did with Abraham, the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, God's deliverance of the Israelites from the Egyptian slavery, taking, leading them into the promised land under Joshua, his judgment later on Judah, through Babylonian armies. Later than that, the coming of Christ. That's a mighty work. The growth of the church. God's destruction of Jerusalem because of the unbelief of the Jews. All of those things fit are all within, the, within Scripture that we know about mighty works that took place in history. But history continues after the Bible. It continues after the first century. After that, we see the growth of the Roman Empire. We know that persecution of Christians took place on regular basis in, the, in, the, in some of those early centuries. Later, we see, that we see the growth of Islam. We see through God's amazing gospel work, we see the time of the Reformation. We see the settlement of America, the war for independence, the tragedy of slavery, the civil war, two world wars. I mean, just all kinds of things that are there that all fit under the category of God's mighty works. God is always at work in history. He's at work strengthening and growing his church in the world in ways oftentimes that we don't understand why it's happening that way. But again, he's at work doing that. He's at work in chastening. He's at work in bringing judgment. 
all of that is taking place in history. And David says, I want you to think about that, not just because it's interesting to you, but think about it because it brings glory to God when you do that. David goes a step further in this. He tells us that we can praise the Lord by speaking of his mighty works in history from generation to generation. See, this especially back in verse 4 to 7, where he says, One generation shall praise your works to another, shall declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wonderful works I will meditate. Men shall speak of the power of your awesome acts, and I will tell of your greatness. They shall eagerly utter the memory of your abundant goodness and will shout joyfully of your righteousness. So verse 4, key verse here. One generation shall praise your works to another. This is written in reference to a single generation's first responsibility at the first part of that verse. The second part of the verse, I mean it's singular, the second part of that verse is plural. It's, and then they shall declare your mighty acts. So one generation's praise of God's works in history is then picked up by other generations and together generation on top of generation speaks of and acknowledges praise to God for things that he's done in history. Verses 5 to 7 <coughs> speak of what this praise can look like. It says, On the glorious splendor of your majesty, on your wonderful works I will meditate. Men shall speak of your... Um, Men shall speak of the power of your awesome acts. I will tell of your greatness. They shall eagerly utter the memory of your abundant goodness and will shout joyfully of your righteousness. He kind of goes back and forth between what he's going to do and what others are going to do as well in response and, and in, in conjunction with. God's wonderful works are to be thought about and then spoken of to others, especially to those in a younger generation. Those of, this, of course, includes things that are recorded for us in Scripture, God's wonderful acts that men and women over the centuries are, that are recorded for us in the Word of God. We need to know about those. We need to know what the Word of God says. And then there's other people and events since the Scriptures were completed that we also need to learn about. I mean, just some names that just come to my mind are Athanasius. Be good to know who John Huss was and John Wycliffe. Martin Luther, uh, Lady Jane Grey is one of my favorites. The Pilgrims, John Winthrop, George Washington, Andrew Fuller, William Carey, Susanna Wesley, uh, mother of both John and Charles Wesley, Isaac Backus, Charles Spurgeon. You could just kind of go on and on. And really, this idea is the reason that I preach a history sermon during the uh, Reformation. We're supposed to remember those things. We're supposed to. That's the reason that we actually took some time to remember Brother Andrew last week. Now, in addition to these people that are more known, they may be in your history books, they may be in various ways people have written about them. There are some people that are not really known to history, but that you know them personally. They are people who made a significant difference in your life, in your walk with the Lord. I was looking back at my notes, and um, honestly, I'd forgotten until I looked at this that I preached on this sermon back in 2005, preached on this passage in 2005. Some of you probably remember it very well. <laughs> well, what was significant about 2005, and I preached it for Father's Day because my dad had died about five weeks earlier. And I was especially thinking about this one generation shall speak of these works to another. And that was one of the big things that hit me as I thought about my dad's death. My mom just has died fairly recently. Both of them was a reminder of their commitment to the Lord, the, the commitment they had to actually have us involved in church. I remember, and I did, wasn't always happy about this, but I've, I know I've, showed, I've shared it many times, Going to church and everything that church offered was never an option for us. It was never an option not to go, is what I mean. There was never a discussion, do I have to go tonight? You didn't ask that question. We all went every time. 
And I still remember, if you were sick enough not to go to the church in the morning, you didn't do anything the rest of the day because you must be really sick. <laughs> I wasn't always happy about that when it happened, but now I think that's one of the greatest blessings that God brought in my life. One of the greatest blessings that my parents were that committed to the Lord and to the church that they understood how important that was. And so when I think about one generation speaking to another, I think I don't want to forget what my dad did and what my mom did. I don't want to forget that. Those things are important that you learn from them. You've got people just like that in your life. You've got those same kind of people who have had very significant roles in your life. Think about them occasionally. Thank God for them. And when you have opportunity, you may want to say, maybe tell somebody else about it. Each generation has the responsibility to speak of the mighty acts of God to the next generation. That's one of the things that really Matthew and Jeremiah have been doing with the Connect group, which I think is really good because one thing that, that they have done with this group, and as far as I know, this is quite unique to most youth or young adult groups, is they will often bring members of the congregation who are older to come and share a testimony or something about what's, some things they have learned, some things that have, that have taken place you know, in their own life, just to share. Just the idea of one generation sharing with another generation and trying to help make connections there. Because you know, I mean, those of us who have been in our 20s, <laughs> you don't know much in your 20s. <laughs> you really don't. You just don't know much at all. You may have a college diploma, but you don't really know a lot. But if you're 65 or 70 or 80, you know a lot. And there's a lot you can learn from the 60, 65, and 80-year-olds. There really is. And this verse says, make that happen. It needs to happen. It's one of the ways that we speak together of the greatness of God. The third theme that shows up several times in this psalm is this. The great and glorious God deserves praise for his majestic kingdom. In David's hymn of praise, he includes the praise, he includes the praise that God deserves because of the majesty of his kingdom. Uh, verses 11 to 13 says, They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and talk of your power to make known to the sons of men your mighty acts and the glory of the majesty of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. Your dominion endures throughout all generations. There are several things that David includes in this praise that I think it would be good for us to take note of. The first one is this, and that is that believers take comfort in knowing that the Lord reigns in power and is greater than all other kingdoms. There are several aspects to God's kingdom when that phrase or term is used. One is his kingdom of power is sometimes described as, and that speaks of his providential rule over creation, which we talked about when we we're talking about the works of providence. That can also be talked about God's work in his, in his kingdom of power. This aspect of God's kingdom that is spoken of here, I believe especially is highlighting what is oftentimes called his kingdom of grace. It's God's work of providing salvation for sinners. It's his work of graciously not just providing that salvation, but applying it to people and to actually causing them to continue to grow in their salvation. All that comes under God's kingdom of grace. And I think that's especially what's being talked about here. In verse 11, speaking of the glory of God's kingdom is to speak of his power, it says. Well, the fact that any person ever puts their faith in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord is an act of God's gracious power. You aren't smart enough or powerful enough to do that on your own. It's a work of his power when you actually realize your sin and put your faith in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. I think that's part of what he's talking about there. Early in verse 8, David praises God for his grace and for his mercy. So it's out of his grace and mercy that he shows his power to save sinners. And that's the glory of his kingdom. That's what brings us into his kingdom, his kingdom of grace. 
Second, we see that believers rejoice in the opportunity to speak to others of the truths of God's kingdom, of the truths of God's kingdom. So not only does God show himself powerful in his grace, but David says in verse 11 and 12 that his godly ones are to speak of that power to others. We're to speak of the power or speak of the glory of his kingdom. We're to make known to the sons of men, he says, his mighty acts in salvation. Well, speaking of God's saving grace is a means of praising him for his greatness. Yes, we talk of his saving grace within fellow believers. We talk about what he's done in our life. We encourage each other as we consider the scriptures and think about what they mean and how they might apply. But we also look for opportunities to speak of the glory of his kingdom to others outside of the church. His kingdom is described as a majestic kingdom. And he wants us to recommend a majestic kingdom to others. If you know something that's majestic and you can describe it as majestic, it's probably worth looking at more closely and talking about. This is a majestic kingdom that he wants us to recommend and talk about to others. Third, believers rejoice in the certainty that the Lord's kingdom endures throughout all generations. This, of course, reflects really David's first verse of the hymn when he starts and says he extols the God and King and blesses his name forever and ever. Well, verse 13 tells us that his kingdom is an ever forever kingdom. It's an everlasting kingdom. Nothing can defeat God's kingdom. Nothing can cause it to go out of existence. I know there have been, uh, and I think there are even presently, various dictators who uh, their purpose is to completely remove any trace of Christianity in their kingdom. Significant persecution going on there. They will, um, there are people who have tried that and continue to try that. They will never be successful. Now, Satan is always at work. Sin is an evil that's always present. Serious enemies there, to be sure. But our God is king and Lord over all. That can never change. And those who have been graciously brought into his kingdom will be a part of that kingdom for eternity. And to make this even more specific, David says that God's dominion endures throughout all generations. I was trying to count up. I don't know how many. It depends on how you count a generation. It was how many years. Some people have said 20, 30, 40 years, whatever. Don't know exactly what, if there's a precise term for that. And I'm not good enough in math. Some of you are. Maybe Steve could do this. How many generations have passed since 1,000 B.C. to 2020? <laughs> I don't know. It's been a lot. It's been a lot of generations. Well, all through those generations, there have been times of great gospel victory, revival, all kinds of just amazing things that have happened in those in those times of generation since the time of David when he wrote this psalm, his favorite, his favorite hymn. There have also been times of great darkness. There have been times of serious suffering. False teaching has been very prominent in some of those times. Some of the times in history actually are nicknamed the Dark Ages. But even though believers through these generations may be outnumbered in a particular time, the kingdom of grace that they are in and are a part of will never fall by the wayside. His grace is always there to strengthen in times of weakness. His word will never fail. His gospel will never fail to bear fruit because his kingdom endures throughout all generations. Fourth point here is that the believers rejoice in the fact that their king is righteous, kind, and near to all who call upon him. Verses 17 through 19 uh, speak to this in some way. It says, The Lord is righteous in all his ways, kind in all his deeds. The Lord is near to all who call upon him, to all who call upon him in truth. He will fulfill the desire of those who fear him. He will also hear their cry and will save them. We don't have to wonder if our king will do the right thing. He will. It says he's righteous in all his ways. Who else can you say that about? Like I say, again, we've gone through this election cycle. One of the things that you have to be prepared for, especially if it's a kind of a bigger election, 
any possible skeleton in your closet is going to come out and it's going to, they're going to make a commercial about it. They may take it out of context, which they probably almost always do. But there's all kinds of things, and every one of us have some things we think, well, I wish you would, hopefully they wouldn't find this out about me, that I did that at this time. There's no skeletons in God's closet. He always does what is right. He has always done what is right. That means we can trust him. I think that's one of the biggest problems that politicians have. Can you trust them? You can trust God. There's no skeletons. All he does is done righteously. And not only is it always done righteously, he is always kind. There is kindness in everything that he does. That's a reminder to us that the Lord causes all things, again, to work together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Your God, your King, your Savior is kind in all his deeds. Think about your life. Think about the things that you're struggling with right now. Think about the things that you're worried about. Think about the things that are confusing and frustrating to you. And then remember, your God is kind in all his deeds. That really helps the context of whatever we're struggling with. That's why praise is so important. We can so focus on the inner workings of things that are going on, we forget. And then somebody says, you know, the Lord's kind in all his deeds. What? That applies to this? Yes, it does. Along with that, we are told that the sovereign Lord is near to all who call upon him in truth, to all who cry out to him. So all of those things that are weighing heavy on you, remember the Lord is near to you. You're not alone. He is near you to comfort you, to guide you, to encourage you, to hear you cry, to lead you into truth. He is always near. So as Christians, we are part of a majestic kingdom with a glorious king. Be encouraged. And David says, praise him for that. Finally, we see that believers rejoice that their king keeps those who love him and righteously destroys those who persist in wicked unbelief. Verse 20, the Lord keeps all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. Well, this ties into the fact that, in the, in the Lord's, that the Lord's kingdom of grace, again, is an everlasting kingdom. He keeps all who love him. So all who love him come in faith. That means he's going to keep your faith alive. He's going to keep your faith alive. Even through some of those really difficult times when your faith is seriously challenged, he will keep your faith alive. He promises to keep you, so keep crying out to him. He's the one who saves. Keep crying out to him. But along with that, and remember, this is in the middle of David's favorite hymn of praise. The whole thing is a hymn of praise. The wicked are going to be destroyed. And David includes that in his praise. <laughs> I don't know if you noticed, but because most of it's first one of the first times you heard that song we sang from 145, they include that in that hymn. And that, that we sang. Because it was because it's in Scripture. There's a place for saying, Lord, we praise you. Because the wicked who persist in their wickedness are destroyed. Feels a little funny, feels a little uncomfortable, but it's true. Our God is a righteous king. He will always do what is right, and we praise him for that. Sin and unbelief are unrighteous. There is a terrible but righteous price to pay for that unbelief. So it's important to keep in mind that this shows up, again, like I said, in a hymn of praise. Well, the truth here is consistent with what Jesus instructed us when he said we should pray that his kingdom would come. Let me tell you what the Baptist Catechism says about that as we close up here. He says when we, Baptist Catechism says, when we pray that prayer, your kingdom come, we are praying that Satan's kingdom may be destroyed and that the kingdom of grace may be advanced. 
ourselves and others brought into it and kept in it, and that the kingdom of glory may be hastened. Final quote on your outline, A.S. Eglin says, The guardianship of the good implies the destruction of the wicked. The guardianship of the good implies the destruction of the wicked. And of course, after speaking then of all these aspects of praise to our great God, David closes, how else, but with a commitment to keep on praising. He says, my mouth will speak the praise of the Lord, and all flesh will bless his holy name forever and ever. Lord, we thank you again for your word, and I thank you for David's example to us to help us grow in our understanding of what praise and worship looks like. And every one of us, no matter how long we've been Christians, every one of us have room to grow and expand as far as our praise and our understanding of you is concerned. Help us to grow. Help us maybe to take some things from this passage that we can begin to incorporate in our own times of worship personally, even in our prayer times. Just ask you would help us to do that. Also, just remind us of these things on a regular basis. There's so much in here that puts everything that we're going through in a right context. You are the sovereign Lord who is great. You are the one who is kind in all you do. You are perfectly righteous, and you keep us. You keep us in your kingdom. Thank you that those things are true. Lord, encourage us with those truths. If you're one who has never put your faith in Christ, Actually, at this point, you, you would fit in what he describes as the wicked because you've rejected him. But it doesn't have to stay that way because the rest of this psalm has to do with about the goodness of God and the greatness of God. He is worthy of your trust. I invite you to put your faith in Christ. A prayer like this would be a way to start. Lord, I realize that I'm a sinner. I have done lots of wicked things. But I know that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners like me. Thank you for that great work that he did, that work of salvation. And I want to receive him as my Savior and commit my life to him as the Lord of my life. If, uh, if, if you would like to talk more about that, you can make a note in your tear-off, or those who are watching online can reach out to us through the website. It's in the name of Christ that we pray. Amen.